What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. to burn it all down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in the Hudson Valley in New York, and I'm organizing the second segment of the best of 2018 here on the podcast. We have selected first our three favorite interviews of 2018, and it was a really tough decision. We've had amazing guests. If you're interested on our website, www.burnitalldown.com, there is a tab under hosts that lists the guests that we've had. And we are so proud and grateful for people who have taken the time to um, share with us their experiences and insights. So these three interviews start with Wyoming Atias, who was interviewed by Amira Rose Davis on episode 53. In 1968, Tyus became the first person ever to win gold medals in the 100-meter sprint in two consecutive Olympic Games. Then we move on to discuss the state of women's soccer with Argentine goalkeeper Gabriela Garton. I, myself, Brenda Elsie, interviewed her when I was on a Fulbright last year in Argentina. And finally, we have Jessica's interview with Mary Carrillo in episode number 74. Of course, she's a former professional tennis player, tennis commentator, Emmy award-winning reporter for HBO Real Sports, and also an Olympic commentator. So those were our three favorite interviews, though. I I mean, (laughs) it was a really tough decision. So to even say that um, is to to be a little bit disingenuous with how much we loved the interviewees we had for this year. And then you're going to hear everybody discussing what we're looking forward to in 2019. So don't say we're not optimistic. We would just like to wish all of our flamethrowers a wonderful, wonderful, happy, happy new year. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited because your memoir is coming out. It's called Tiger Bell. And I was wondering if you could let us know what can we expect from your memoir? What is it going to talk about? Well, it's pretty much my life a little bit, but mostly it talks about from childhood on. And a lot of it is dealing with being a Tiger Bell. And that's being on the Tennessee State, being at school there, on a track team there. And it tells all my great times and my struggles. I think that it is a book that children can have from young to old and that it talks about a lot of my struggles and talks about a lot of my non-struggles and just what it takes to live a good life, a happy life. And 
and being strong, being a strong black woman, I like to think. And, and especially at the time I was trying to be that, that in the sixties, uh, doing it in living in the South and in the Jim Crow era and just being very feeling good about who you are as a person. And I think as a woman, that's, that's the key part that we were not always encouraged to feel great about who we are. And uh, it didn't matter whether you were in sports or whatever you were in, you were not always that given that kind of encouragement. And I would like to think my book shows that no matter how hard the struggle, you can win it. And I would like to say all the time, you never, you know, you, you always stay in the fight. Right. That's wonderful. I'm very excited to read it. It's been um, a long time coming. I think we should amplify the voices right, <laughs> of of these tremendous athletes. So at the time that you start getting involved in sports, was it permissible for girls to be running track like <laughs> you were? Did you come up uh, against obstacles? Well, you know, I did. It, really? Absolutely, you had to. And you're talking about the 50s and the 60s, and uh, young women just were not encouraged to do that. I mean, if you play sports, okay, go out there and play. Don't sweat, so to speak. You know, don't, don't, don't be good, actually. You know, it's, you know, the boys are taught, you know, you fall down, you get up, and you try it again. Young women, oh, you got to hurt. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. That was kind of what was going on when I was growing up. I was just, I feel like really blessed and happy to have parents like I did because my dad, even he was like, you can do whatever you want. Then he would say, baby, you can do whatever you want. All you have to do is try and do If that pleases you, if it makes you happy, then that's great. And he would tell my brothers, I had three older brothers, always, let her play. What are you not doing? What do you mean she can't play because she's a girl? We're not having any of that. Not only that, she is good. And that's the key. You want somebody good on your team. And not so much I can't play the boys. I could, but it, <laughs> but it was more that... You know, he, he, he made that come home to my brothers that she's good. You want people that's good on your team. You that's what you want to do. And I and they and they got that message. And you're thinking in the fifties and the sixties that was not a message for every young person, especially men, and not for women at all, you know, to be good at what you want to do and be proud of it and you know, go out there and be the best. They would say go out there, do your best, but be the best was a different thing. Right. Well, ESPN, the magazine, just put out a list of the dominant. So they're doing dominant athletes, dominant teams. And I think that Tennessee State is one of the most dominant teams in college history or overall. And so you talk about being a Tiger Bell. And actually, a new documentary just came out, uh, Mr. Temple and the Tiger Bells. And I recommend everybody watch it. Uh, You're talking head in it. But what do you wish people would know and understand about Tennessee State University and and their uh, dominant track team? Well, I just think. For the Tiger Bells, they have been around for years. And being around, I mean, we're talking from early 50s and uh, putting over 40 people on an Olympic team, on, on different Olympic teams and bringing home 23 medals and 13 of them gold and something countries don't do. And here you have the small school. As when I was in school, I think it was maybe 1,200 students there. And we had put in that produces all these great women, black, uh, black women at that. <laughs> at that, and they and nobody honors. I just 
One thing that really bothers me that Mr. Temple, who's Coach Temple, people call him, but I always call him Mr. Temple, that they never, he really never got his due. He never got his honors. You know, they, I mean, for a person to do as much as he had done with women, with black women, and nobody says very much about it. I don't think there's ever a team. You know, when you talk about great coaches, I I don't ever hear anybody speaking on how great he was. I mean, you hear people talk about this coach was so good in ba- at basketball. This coach was nobody's ever said how great he was. And not only did he do all put us on Olympic teams, he made sure all his girls graduated. I like to know how many people can say that. So uh, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the 1968 Olympic Games, which was your second Olympics. They were in Mexico City. And like I said, you won gold medals there. And a lot of people did. I have said this to you before. I think it's, you know, one of the best, if not the best uh, track teams we've ever fielded. Uh, just the, the power and, and, and on that team was remarkable. But it definitely was overshadowed, of course, by Tommy Smith and John Carlos' medal stand protest that had come after a proposed boycott of the Games. And one of the things that both Tommy Smith and John Carlos, as well as Dr. Harry Edwards, have commented on is that their regret is not reaching out to the Black women that year and including them in the pre-planning of the proposed Olympic boycott. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about uh, what 68 meant to you and what you decided to ultimately do at the Games, which was including wearing Black shorts and dedicating your medals to Tommy uh, and John after their protest and after there was action taken against them. But I would love to be able to write Black women back into the story of the 1968 mm-hmm. moment. Well, I think they should be. I, You know, there were two things that happened. I, that, I think one thing especially that bothers me most a lot is the fact that Mountain Manning NIMS now that won the 800 meters. A black woman had never been done before. She won the gold medal. And it's 50 years later, and no one in America, I should say, uh, has won a gold medal. And that, and no one talks about that. That is an amazing feat. And it was really important because there's the idea that black women couldn't run distance. Exactly. Exactly. That was a big deal, precisely. It is. And she went up there and she did it. And then uh, for me to go and went back to back 100 meters, nobody's ever heard of that. Nobody thought about it. And I guess they didn't think, we let, we know they didn't think about it. They still don't think about it that I did that. That, and and I think if, if it was a male, figure that did that, we would still be talking about it. And I just think that it takes a lot for people to say, you know, when we, I think about, about being included with the whole boycott, when they were talking about it, when it was happening at San Jose State, to me, how do you leave out a group of people? How do you, and uh, and then not only that, these are the people, the, the group of people you're going to leave out are the black women that and black women has always supported all the, all the causes and, as they would say, always right there with their man, not so much behind their man, but right there with them, sometimes more in front of that. And that, you know, that we were just not even called upon to even make a statement or say what we thought, whether it was the same thing we would, they were thinking or not. But, you know, and, you know. It's not just and the press also had a lot to do with that. You know, they they would call and just talk to Mr. Temple. What do your girls think about this? 
but it could have been handled another way. But also, I just felt that we should have been included. I think that uh, when you have a woman's point of view, <laughs> it is more inclusive. I feel that way that when and when you, that if when, and especially with a project like that, then you need more. You need everybody included. You know, it's it's a you know what you were thinking. What were you on the right track? These things, that's these the things that need to happen, needed to change, and we should have been right there with the change. And we were just that nobody wrote about it, nobody said anything about it. I mean, you know, from us wearing black shorts for us dedicating it, and nobody, and even on the victory stand, there are pictures where we were given the black power salute, but nobody talks about that. And it's like, and people say, well, what did you do? Did you do anything? Gosh, 50 years and nobody know that, you know, these kinds of things happen and that, you know, the women would just, they were there. It was just that what they had to say or if they were asked, it was never printed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that has a lot of lessons for today as we're watching this kind of uh, renaissance of athletic activism and we see WNBA players being particularly okay. active and I think that there's a lot of lessons in that and, and remembering women are a athletes yes, too yeah, right. but have something to say yeah I, I think so and I think too the other part I'm really loving in this day and time you have so many women of color being a part of sports that we would never even dream of them being a part of it never was thought of or they would never allow us to be a part of and we have so many, and it's just the fact that, you know, change had to start somewhere. And to me, change started in 68. It was moving on. And it's just now women are getting more empowered and being well listened to a lot more. And that's, I think that's more, that's great. I think it's not just on the athletic field, it's everywhere. And that's what we need in order to make a change. And that, you know, all of, the, you know, change is good. And, the, and then Title IX uh, came, and that made a whole big difference. But it also made a big difference in black schools too, colleges and universities. In that, that a lot of the pro, you know, you were getting like with Mr. Temple's program could never happen and ever because you know nobody else was doing it when he was doing it, and then now. All schools are equal, you know, they have women's sports and you have to be equal in that. And uh, so now all schools are great recruiting. You know, you can see that all the time. And uh, so students are going to say, well, I don't want to be in Tennessee. I prefer being in California (laughs) type thing. And um, so that's to me what has happened with that, what happened with the women's sports. Not that it's a bad thing. But it's definitely a legacy that we don't talk about as much. We have this idea about the cost of integration for black college football, for instance, Mm -hmm. that when they started integrating colleges, black college football started declining. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that for women's sports, Mm -hmm. you have that same legacy happening after Title IX. And for black programs, especially these programs like Tennessee State and Tuskegee Mm -hmm. that were vanguards and were the first to give scholarships and do all of these things, this was really the the start of the decline of them Mm -hmm. because of resources and racism and all of this kind of stuff. And I think that's really important to talk about. I think so too. And I think it should be talked about a lot more because I don't think everybody get the gist of it. And I think what we're saying here is just a little, the touch of the iceberg, you know? And I think a lot of times people might hear this little snippet and go, wow, wow, they saying that? That's not... It is true, you know. It is true in the sense that you know, if you look at it, you you research it, it would tell you right then. 
you know, we all want progress. It's not that we're not wanting that and we not see it, but these, you know, you think about when I know people that are really in at Tennessee State. I mean, I know Mr. Temple would say, you know, I just can't my program. I can't I can't compete. You know, I can't give, you know, I can't give what these big schools are giving. I can't. And you don't want, you know, you people want to go to the schools and that's great. And they have the grades to go. It's not. And that's the other thing. <laughs> you you just can't want to go and go, but you have to have the grades to go and all of that. And, you know, when it was just Tuskegee and Tennessee State, you know, they had a monopoly on it and things have changed. But in all that change, and we're losing a lot of what what we call history, our right. history. Right. And I just have one last question. You talked about the importance of pay equality, and there's been a lot of conversations in recent years about pay equity in sports for women, and then also about amateurism within mm-hmm. college ranks. And, and um, we talked about your work aid scholarship, $10 a week. Um, and I was just... A month. A month. Oh, yeah, that's right. $10 a month. And... And I think that we're at a moment where a lot of labor issues have come to the forefront and women athletes aren't paid as much as men. Mm -hmm. Uh, College athletes, particularly black college athletes, are caught in this kind of exploitative system where Mm -hmm. schools are making billions of dollars off their their back. But a lot of times when people try to defend against this, they say, oh, but if we pay men athletes, the women's sports are going to disappear. And this week, my coworker wrote a piece that said, well, Stop using Title IX as a shield and really just pay everybody. <laughs> and so I, w- I, I think that uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on issues of pay equality within women's sports. And if you thought, have we have we made progress? What work is there to be done? Where are we about paying women athletes? <laughs> well, a long ways away. I know that. That's number one. I mean, I've always... One, I mean, I retired after 68, and then uh, about five years later, I decided to go back because they started a pro track tour, and I thought athletes should be paid because I know what a struggle it was for so many athletes to, I mean, I was okay because I was, I got three meals a day in college. I got all that stuff paid for, but people that were not in college, it was very difficult for them to find, uh, have a job, and especially for women, to have a job, to be able to work at a job and get the person that they're working for. Could I go to, I have to go to Europe for three weeks? And yeah. they said, well, why? You don't have a job when you get back. So I've always, I've always felt that athletes should be paid. Why? I mean, why is it that because you run track or why is it because you want to be in the Olympic Games, you should not be paid? That means if you're in the Olympic Games, you're the best in the world. You should be paid for your talent. I've always felt that. And now that it's starting to come around. But when it started to come around, of course, women were are way, way, way on the back burner. And then like, we're never and it's like. When are we going to see equal pay when when it comes to that? I mean, I can think about athletes. I don't, I don't know how it is now, but I'm sure, in, like in track and field, I would hope that they get the same amount. But from the, what I hear, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and, and, and the same thing. I just think that why wouldn't you? You want you want the best. You want to pay. For, you pay the best basketball player. You pay the best baseball player why is it you can't pay the best woman and if they're showing you entertainment what you want you coming out to see i mean i can remember when 
UConn was winning all those games all the time, and people started to say, oh, God, they, that team always win. I don't even want to see basketball because they always win. They never said that when the Cowboys were winning all those teams, winning all those championships. I never. I want to see more of the Cowboys. I want the Cowboys to be the one. And it's like, well, what's the – I don't understand the difference, and I think people need to, you know, take a bigger – Look at the big picture because here they look at it, and it's uh, to me it goes back to you know, women are so you know they're not on it they don't they're weak they they don't do give us a good show but you know I don't know why not I mean if anybody looked at the final four this year exactly, <laughs> exactly. we had a field day talking about that last week yeah, yeah. I it's I mean I think and, and I guess the people that were so upset with UConn not winning they must be very happy now so, so UConn have not won in two years straight now <laughs> and, but they don't even know yeah exactly <laughs> you know it's and, and we need to increase coverage for women's sports so that people can see this it's great, great talent, talent you know? yeah and I think too that I I I do think in this past Olympics and all that, and with the emerging of a lot of women in color coming to the forefront, and women and things you have not seen, like in gymnastics and all of that, and just the fact that people are looking at that and saying, it used to be if somebody was like uh, Simone, that, oh, that's just too muscular. And, and that, they see now that that's what, you know, it's not too muscular. That's been athletic. You know? But when men are doing it, it's, oh, yeah, good, strong. That's what you, how you have to be. Why does it make a difference whether you're a man or woman? You want to, as I go back to, you want to see the best. You want the best to be there. In order for that to happen, we have to encourage our women to do that. And we have to insist that the press cover it differently. And, you know, and when women do something uh, and they don't say and and we have to educate the announcers because some of the things they say about women in certain sports, it's like and I mentioned this in my book. That's something I talk about in my book. So. Please go out there and buy that. (laughs) Tiger Bell, while we tie a story. But I talk about that and how, you know, there's such a big difference. And I don't understand. you When you're looking at sports, you want to see the best. You want to see who's doing. And if it's females that are better, that's all the best. That that lets you know what the world is all about. That's what the world is. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us today. Thanks for having me. And go get the book. Well, yes, please do. <laughs> I'm so excited to be talking today with Gabby Garton, keeper for the Argentine national women's team, professional club player here in Argentina, and also an amazing master's student and scholar of the game. Gabby, you've been playing in Argentina for five years now professionally. And before that, you were at Rice University. How was your college career? Let's just say my time at Rice was a little bit disappointing. Growing up, obviously, when you're playing club soccer, basically your main goal is to be able to get to college and play at a Division One level and hopefully get a scholarship to do so. But honestly, my experience wasn't anything like what I was hoping it was going to be. I thought it was going to be where you get there and, you know, College was a great opportunity to grow as a player, as a person, and that the coaches were going to be, you know, capable of of leading you through that. But unfortunately, it's almost like the main goal, which is not so surprising, I guess, 
is winning, right? That's the, that's the bottom line. So a lot of times coaches would find it easier to maybe recruit new players instead of working on the players that they had with them. And also I think a lot of the, the times I felt like this and some other girls who probably didn't get as much playing time as they would have liked felt as well that their value for the coaches coaching staff is completely based on what they could offer on the field. And as a time in your life, like when you're going through college, you're kind of trying to figure out what, what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And when your whole value and a, and a time is, is placed entirely upon how much playing time you get or what a coach thinks of you, it's really difficult to kind of work through that. And no, honestly, <laughs> I actually still have nightmares. Like I, I, it was just like a, a time where I, I kind of stopped enjoying soccer almost. Like I dreaded going to practices. I still have nightmares <laughs> where I wake up like sweating and so scared that I got I showed up late to practice or dreams where I, I forget my cleats or my gloves or something at home and I I come back and I'm late for practice. It's just like that kind of strange, I don't know, fear of, of messing up that I felt was instilled in me during that time. So honestly, when I got the chance to play in Argentina, it was kind of like the the passion that I originally had for soccer and or football, I guess. It was kind of reignited, I think, uh, learning to enjoy it again and train without so much stress maybe like not fearing uh like training without the fear of making a mistake I guess would be the way I'd put it obviously there's pressure because you know you're playing at a club level and a competitive level but I just felt the pressure was different than when I was at Rice how did you end up on the Argentine national team okay so I guess my arrival with the national team or the way I got to the national team was kind of crazy Honestly, I think if it hadn't been for Rice, I, I wouldn't be in Argentina, probably, ironically enough. When I was going into my senior season, my goalkeeper coach at Rice told me that there was an incoming freshman who, her name's also Gabby, who had had experience training with the U-17 national team in Argentina and had contact information for the coach and had mentioned that they were actually looking for goalkeepers. And so through Gabby, I was able to get in touch with Carlos Borello, who's the the coach now, and he was the coach at the time. There was a period between 2013 and 2016 where he wasn't involved in AFA. But when I was, this was in 2011, when I was getting, originally getting in touch with him. And yeah, he invited me down for a trial. I went for two weeks. I trained like the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday schedule that, that they have now. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me. I guess just coming from from college where you have everything in terms of like material things, equipment, clothes, everything. You have everything pretty much handed to you and ready, you know. You show up for preseason and you already have four training shirts, shorts, uh, all your game gear. Uh, they give you cleats. For goalkeepers, they would give us gloves. Everything we really needed. And when I got to Argentina, when I, you know, I showed up, I think actually it was wearing some rice gear. The girls were like, they all loved the clothes. They're like, that's such a, that's so awesome here. We don't get anything, you know, like, what do you mean? You don't get to keep any of the clothes you train in? No. I mean, you show up at the locker room, you get dressed in the clothes that they, they have set out for you. And then when you leave, you have to leave the clothes behind, like any of the gear. And that was just one thing. It was also the fact that they had to pay for their own cleats. Girls who often 
it was difficult to be able to put together enough money to buy a decent pair of cleats, especially since in Argentina, any sort of clo- like article of clothing and even more so for sports gear is probably at least 50% more expensive than in the States. And you're talking salaries that are pro- at least a third of what you know people make in the U.S. monthly. So, and for these girls, even less probably. So it was just something that I was shocked and was curious as to what it was that what kept them playing then because they would also tell me that the league wasn't that great and that you know they weren't really ever sure if they were going to get to play on the weekend because the games would get suspended and then they'd get passed to the next weekend and the tournaments a tournament that had 14 teams in it sometimes would last like a whole year or more and but just because of a, a lack of organization and that they would sometimes get to play things have improved since then but at that time Sometimes they'd have four games scheduled in a month, but they'd only end up playing one because of weather, and then that they wouldn't play in the week, so games would get pushed on. But just talking to them, it was it was clear that what like just being able to wear the clothes from the Argentine national team and and being able to think about representing their country was something that was enough to push them and to continue playing in those conditions. Uh, at the time, there were very few girls who were playing out of the country. Uh, so they were all pretty much in in the, the league in AFA and Buenos Aires. Something I've been thinking about too is that they wouldn't receive, they were completely, I guess, marginalized in AFA. Like the, it's almost like you feel like women's football is a second thought or even a third, fourth. A lot of times people, I think less so now because they have been receiving more coverage, especially after after this, the letter that they sent and when they went on strike, luckily the media has been have been giving them a lot more a lot more attention, I guess a lot more coverage than before. But there are people who previously didn't even know that there was a women's national team. And this is something that also happens like when I eventually moved to Argentina in two thousand thirteen, I was initially playing with River and I don't know, just getting to talk to talking with people, I would mention that I was playing soccer. Uh, for the women's team, and most people didn't even know they had a women's team at River Plate. But it's just something that that happens frequently. the The men's team gets immense amounts of coverage, and the women's team is kind of just neglected, and more so than just in terms of coverage that they receive. I think one thing that shocked me when the when I first got to Argentina was the fact that you have these huge, massive clubs like. Boca and River, who aren't even capable of, you know, providing providing their teams with the with the gear that they need. The when I got to River, they were training with clothes that were from the men's team that had been used by the men's team over like two years before that or something. It was just all old and some of it had holes in it, didn't really fit right. But I guess that's something that's that's unfortunately very common in most teams, and a lot of teams in AFA don't even have like their own training gear. They just have to clean, train with whatever clothes that they have. But I think it's it's interesting that even though, despite all this, especially the girls who play at the clubs that they, they're huge fans of, like especially at Boca, River, San Lorenzo, it's like they're willing to, to put up with those conditions to be able to wear the jersey that they're wearing. But mainly just because of the of what, it, what that means in terms of men's football. Because Boca, River, and San Lorenzo, for example, they're... They're well known, but because of what their men's teams have accomplished, the club that I have been playing for over the past two years, Wyatt Kisa, 
is one of the clubs that invests probably the most out of the other clubs in AFA, which I'm not saying that it's it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say that I play at Wired Kisa and most people wouldn't even know what club I'm talking about. I think for some girls it was kind of like a source of pride to be able to say that they were playing at, you know, a big club and for people to be kind of taken in by that. But that's I don't know. I, I think I got tired of it at River and the fact that yes, you're playing at a big club, but at the same time you're already measly stipend that you're getting wasn't even a guarantee. Like sometimes we'd get paid, some months we'd get paid and other months we wouldn't. And I'm talking about a stipend about of about twenty dollars, maybe thirty dollars a month. Like and some girls, if they were lucky, might have gotten up to fifty a month. But even so, there were times where they'd owe us three months of stipends and you know, there were girls who would have to pay for their own transport and their families couldn't even hardly afford it and they couldn't make it to practices and but at the same time they're still happy to be there. Which is I guess I guess it's a good thing that they enjoy it, but at the same time it's frustrating that that's kind of what you get used to in Argentina. I know, Brenda, you were saying that like it just makes you so upset to see the conditions that they play in, but the girls try to make the best out of it because it's what they have. But I think I think slowly things are going to change, but it's going to be a long process. It's going to take a big fight from the like from the player side, and then also I don't know. Hopefully, with this new administration in women's football in AFA, uh, they'll be able to work alongside the players to improve the conditions and improve the league. Could you tell me about the collective letter that the that the team sent to the Argentine Football Association a few months ago? Well, I wasn't actually with the team in that period of time, but I was in contact with quite a few of the players who were involved. Mainly, the letter was, I think, like a culmination of frustrations that the girls have been going through over the years. And when they started training again after about a two-year break, they realized that the conditions were worse than when they had left off. They were training on a turf field. They were in a in a locker room that's intended for futsal, which changed. <laughs> we're still uh, we still change in a locker room that's intended for a team, a sport that involves about twelve to fifteen players, and we we're about well when you with the full number about twenty twenty five girls. So it's kind of uncomfortable, and you only have six showers and a limited period of time to get ready. <laughs> and then also the fact that they weren't getting paid their stipend their stipends that corresponded to them and a rough trip to Uruguay for a friendly where they had to to travel to Uruguay by boat where they left around four in the morning, had to wait on a bus before the game for about four to five hours, play the match, and then return by boat that same night because the Federation didn't want to pay for a hotel. And I'm pretty sure they didn't get a stipend or any money that was supposed to be paid for them for that day either. And then in Montevideo, they had to wait on the bus for I don't know, until before match time before they could get into the locker room to warm up and stuff they were on the bus for about five hours so and then right after the match they showered and had to head back to Buenos Aires the same night and having to play a match an international match that same day so I think it was like the letter was just a culmination of a, a lot of like poor treatment pretty much and Feelings of like not being valued at all by the Federation, which are not inaccurate feelings. And with the change in administration, like the, the president of women's football now is brand new. The one who had been there before him has been around since the 90s and pretty much just ensured that the, that the sport wouldn't grow at all. I mean, some of the girls have the opinion that it was most convenient for him 
if the sport didn't grow because it would be easier to steal money or skim money off the top from the discipline. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's probably very reasonable. But anyway, with this new administration, uh, I think there was hopes that their, you know, that their demands are going to be met. The new president is also the vice president of the club where I was playing, Wired Kisa. And he's done some really good stuff at Wired Kisa, but there are also things, obviously, that could be improved in terms of like stipends and not just stipends, but other, other things having to do with like work schedules. And like when a player wants to leave the club, sometimes it's very difficult for the club to give them permission to go to play with, at a different club, even if it's outside the country. But anyway, getting back to the national team, they wrote this letter pretty much just demanding decent treatment. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary, asking for a stipend that was reasonable to replace the hours of work that they missed in order to be able to go to practice and to cover travel costs and and asking to play on a grass field, asking for a locker room that's adequate for the amount of players who were present at training. And I think since that letter, they didn't actually come to a direct agreement, but the Federation decided to, to come up with 200 pesos a day in terms of a stipend. So about, like we said, about $10 a day. And we were training on a grass field, but we're still in the same locker room. As before, but I think it was good for the federation to kind of know that the team is is willing to to unite and to fight for things that that are basic rights. Really, I think in in sports, nothing out of the ordinary and nothing, not, definitely not even close to the same conditions that the men have. So we'll see what what happens. Right now, your team's getting ready to play the Copa America. Copa America Femenina starts in Chile. April 4th and is the only tournament of its kind in the region and it qualifies the countries under Commonwealth, just for our listeners who might not know, for some really big events. So Gabby, how are what are your hopes? How is the Argentine team looking? I think despite the fact that we haven't been training together for that long, I think that Borello, the head coach, has managed to put together a very talented group of players. There's also, in addition to the girls you saw training the other day, there's about seven or eight who are coming in from from leagues around the world. Uh, There's some players coming who play in in Spain and Brazil and China. I think those are the three main. Ah, and one who plays in the United States. She's definitely a huge part, I think, of of our chances. Uh, We have a first, a tough first match against Brazil. That's definitely going to be the biggest challenge. I don't know. I think very even in terms of the rest of the matches. Like it's going to be a tough, a tough schedule. We have Brazil, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Bolivia in our group. And Bolivia is probably the least developed country in terms of women's football. But Ecuador and Venezuela have been taking huge strides in terms of bettering women's football in their countries. I don't know if it's necessarily the federation itself or just the fact that it's becoming more popular among women to play. But uh, they've definitely been, you know, having stronger performances in international tournaments than in the past. So it's going to be a tough, tough group to get through. And then once hopefully we get through the group stage, we're going to need to finish in the top in the top three to have a chance at qualifying for the World Cup and in the top two for qualifying for the Olympics. And then the, the whole top four qualifies for the Pan American Games. We wish you the best of luck in Chile next month. And we appreciate you sharing this incredible story of struggle and dedication with us at Burn It All Down. 
Okay, so how did you originally get into tennis? I played tennis at the Douglas Club. It's a tiny little town in Queens, New York. And I started playing because I had been on the swimming team and my ears were getting terrible, the swimmer's ear. And then one day I saw this beautiful family in cable knit sweaters and creamy white shorts. And it looked beautiful and elegant and warm. And so I started playing <laughs> tennis. That's a very true story. I'll never forget the Cernas came out and played. And so my dad was a very good athlete. We joined the tennis part of the Douglas and Club. And at the same time that that was happening, the McEnroe family from up the street joined the Douglas and Club. We actually had a very, it became a real tennis town. This, the, the courts, there were only five courts, two hard courts, three clay courts. And in the beginning, what they weren't crowded. And then when John McEnroe started becoming John McEnroe, mm. it became very big. And we had tournaments and tennis ladders and Oh, wow. Yeah, and it became a, a real tennis town and a real tennis club. It had been a swimming club. Okay. And it became a tennis club. And my parents are 88 and 92 years old. My dad still plays there about four or five times a week. Oh, wow. With the old guys, he calls them. They're in their 60s. My father's <laughs> 92. Yeah, I'm just playing with the old guys. I love so that's how I started playing. And then, I mean, it became this hotbed. Usually, like when I was growing up, I would read tennis magazines, what anything I could find. And you either had to be in Florida playing on clay right. courts or in California or Texas was big too for hard courts. But then all of a sudden, New York became a hmm. very decent address for tennis. Like, What do you love about tennis? I happen to love all racket sports. I hmm. love the geometry. I think a racket as a tool, whether it's a badminton racket or a tennis racket or a ping pong paddle, or I happen to think that's a beautiful tool. Hmm. And I like that there's a net I like that it's, you know, one-on-one, -on -one. <laughs> basically yeah. that you can, my, what I love about tennis and what I deeply resent about on-court coaching and things like that, that I feel are trying to ruin my, the very integrity, the fiber of my <laughs> sport. I like that you can be more than any other sport. You can be tall. You can be short. You can be fast or slow. You can have great hands. You can have hands of stone. You can play it with any body type. You can play with any kind of mentality, any kind of mindset. You want to be patient, you'll win a lot of matches. You want to be aggressive, you'll win a lot. Of, or you can lose a lot of matches the same way. That is what I genuinely like more about tennis than anything. Any kind of person with any kind of mentality and sensibility can play it and make it their own. Yeah. I think that's really, I don't know that there are a lot of sports that lend themselves to that kind of creativity and freedom. Yeah, no, I agree. What was the transition like? For you, when you retired, you almost went immediately into commentating. I always hung around writers when okay. I when I, play, I was always, and I was kind of quotable as a player. I would lose a match, and the WTA or the Virginia Slims would say, "Can you go in there and?" Okay, so and, you've always been good with sort of turn of phrase. Well, I mean, but I was a Weisenheimer because I would always have just lost to somebody badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I would describe the carnage and like in a. I'm there like, why do you want me to go in and talk about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so, and I always liked writing. My brother's a writer. So I hung around them and I thought it was, I was always interested in how they were describing something or what they were concentrating on or what match they decided to write about. And then TV came around, which at the time when I was offered my first TV job, it was only a couple of tournaments a year. USA Network was just starting to show women's tennis. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really a, a job. I mean, it was just something I did. But then they started covering more tennis, and then I was allowed to do men's tennis, mm. which was a big jump. And then I switched over to ESPN, and they had Davis Cup. And originally, I wasn't allowed, you'll love this, I wasn't allowed to cover Davis Cup, not because ESPN didn't want me to, 
the United States Tennis Association didn't want me to because they came up with some cockamamie like rule. They wanted a male commentator? Is that they wanted mean? someone who had been a Davis Cup player. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. So, of course, I wasn't among those. Yeah. <laughs> who you, played you're Davis never, You're never going to meet that criteria. Right. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I've had a lot of good luck over the years. This guy named Brian Williams was the producer at ESPN at the time. And to his great credit, he said to the USGA, if she can't cover the Davis Cup tie, I don't want to either. He like delivered an ultimatum to the US and they said, all right, what the hell? And so I did, a, and I love Davis Cup, yeah. I love Fed Cup. So I can't tell you how often like a guy thinks he's giving me a compliment, a viewer, when he says, I like listening to you because you don't sound like a girl, your voice is deep. You ever get that nonsense? Well, yeah. Like, and they think we, they're- We are five women who run a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I retract we, my question. We've certainly heard about our voices from people. Right? I mean, so that so you ju- you get judged first and foremost. They're not even listening to the content. Right. They're listening to the sound of it. Right. Yes. Do you have, I'm sure you have plenty, but do you have like a favorite memory of a match that you called? Like when you think back on it, you get a, that thrill of thinking about being there and witnessing it. And oh, boy. It. I'm lucky because I've covered Davis Cup, you know, the team competitions mm-hmm. when the whole place is just rocking. There was a, a 1991 Davis Cup tie between the U.S. and France, and it was in Lyon, France, which is a gorgeous mm. city anyway. And Yannick Noah was the captain, and he brought together all these old guys who weren't supposed to beat the young Pete Sampras, young Andre Agassi. That we were supposed to have the team, and the place I can still remember the ground, the shaking at that. That was one of the best sporting events I'd ever been to. I like, but I've covered now elderly. I've covered. <laughs> I've covered great. Yeah. The, there was a Wimbledon between Lindsay Davenport and Venus Williams. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay had match point and lost. Match point Wimbledon. Yeah. It was one of, still one of the most unforgettable matches I've ever called. And the funny thing is, when the matches are great, I don't remember anything that I said. Right. Necessarily. Because if it's great, you just let the director cut cameras. I wanted to ask you about your Olympic coverage, in part because whenever especially friends of mine that aren't tennis people. And I say, talk about Mary Krill, the video that I always send them. The Babin. This is the Babin video. <laughs> it's just such joy. That is the most ridiculous um, video. It's been, that was at the Athens Olympics. 2004. Jessica, yes. That was at the Athens Olympics. And it's called, the people call it the badminton rant. It's really a, a rant about motherhood. Yes, which I relate to a lot. It's just, I feel like part of it is because your storytelling is so clear. I mean, when you say Christopher Burr, it's always Christopher Burr. Like, just the detail <laughs> with which you deliver. But anyway, I... It I is mean, always... It it's, continues to be Christopher Burr. I'm yes, sure of it. Yes. And so, for as much as... When I, I always say, well, she does tennis commentating and she's great at it. And... But then I'm like, but here's this video. <laughs> That's the thing that I end up showing to people. So you've been, but you've been covering the Olympics for Pyeongchang was my 14th. That's amazing. Pyeongchang was my 14th. What the was, first, so first I, one that I did was Alberville. Okay. So one of the things I was wondering about is to cover something like the Olympics, the learning curve, the amount of information yes. that you would have to know versus tennis, which you grew up playing. Your knowledge base is pretty much set. It's the only sport I'm fluent in. Yeah. So what is that? What was that like for you to go into Olympic coverage? I loved it. My attitude has always been because I really like, I love sports. Mm -hmm. I love the athletic heart. Yeah. And I love traveling or I want to see the planet as much of the planet as I can before I'm gone. And so it got to the point where this was CBS many years ago. I I was still pretty much a kid. 
they asked me if I wanted to to do some uh, cover some skiing. And they're like, absolutely. Like there was no question. <laughs> like, like there wasn't any moment where I thought to myself, what the hell do I know about skiing? Did you know anything about skiing? I skied as a kid, okay. but no, I didn't know anything about skiing. <laughs> so I was the bottom of the hill, the ski reporter. Okay. And that allowed me, and I, I say yes to every, my so whole attitude. Your job was to interview them when they come after they've skied down the hill. When they ski down okay. the hill. That was my assignment. Okay. Fine. I can do that. And my <laughs> attitude was, if I'm not any good at it, they'll tap me on the shoulders and get me gone. Like, yeah. I wasn't afraid of that. Like my attitude, I almost always say yes. These people aren't geniuses who are doing it around you. I mean, and you'll learn if you have any kind of intellectual yeah. curiosity or any kind of sporting awareness, you will probably catch on. I started doing so. Then that's how I got my assignment for Alberville, and then they started using me for gymnastics, and then they started. All of a sudden, now I'm talking about figure skating. It's challenging, and it's. Fun. And if you're sitting next to somebody like Rowdy Gaines, it's yeah. amazing. And you just smile because sports are, that's what sports can do. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. It really is. So one of your other jobs is... <laughs> what else do I do? You, well, you won an Emmy for work on HBO Real Sports. That's a nice show. That's a great show. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as someone, as a reporter myself, a journalist, there are certain stories that I've reported on that I still think a lot about. And yes. I'll think I should check back in, see how that person's doing. Yes. What is one of those stories for you? That well, you that still... the one you're talking about, the Hoyts, Rick and Dick Hoyt, so father, son. Father, yeah. Yes. The kid was born. This is a kid who could have been treated as a vegetable. Yeah, mm -hmm. never, and, and instead he graduated from college. And your dad famously pushed him in the marathons, marathons, ultra marathons, triathlons. I mean, it's it's an incredible bond between father and son, mm -hmm. and it was a beautiful story. And we actually updated that story twice. Oh wow! Yeah, in fact, a couple of Boston marathons ago, it was going to be the father's Dick's last marathon because that. he was getting old, his back was bad, mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And Rick still is pushed by friends of theirs and stuff. Those are the kind of stories that resonate. The late, great Frank DeFord, he too was a correspondent for Real Sports from the beginning. I joined the second year. Frank was there from the first year. He did stories like that too. I mean, Real Sports does a lot of good work, investigative journalism, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. paper trails, all that kind of stuff. My assignments tend to be, and which are kind of what Frank's were, more profiles, quieter stories that we get to shine a light on sometimes people you'd never even consider that they could be athletic, let alone be championing some big cause. So I've had a lot of nice stories like that over the years. One of my final questions, I've tried, I've looked around and it doesn't seem like you have much social media. I have zero presence. Please tell me about how great that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I have Did and you ever have it? Never. And how, everybody I work for wants me to have. How have you resisted? I, like, why? Because it looks terrible to okay. me. It's for, it seems like such a time suck, first of all, which I don't have time for. And I know that I would get very grouchy in a hurry. Yeah. And I would write things that I mean entirely too much. When I say, oh, I didn't mean, no, I would always mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I get myself in enough trouble on national television. Do I really want to have a back and forth argument with some mook who's just trying to get me lit up? I mean, I'm on it. I watch, I follow you. I follow, I'm on Twitter secretly, covertly. Oh, Jim smart. Courier taught me how to do that. That's smart. That's smart because there is so much information out there and I'm mm -hmm. very politically aware. So I go from, you know, following tennis to following, you know, the latest horror in Washington 
but I keep my distance because I just know it would be a bad idea. And what we are told is, you know, stay out of politics. If you go on social media, you know, Martina Navratilova has never written a word about tennis. <laughs> she is a great, dear friend of mine. Yes. I happen to agree with her politics, but you don't follow Martina Navratilova to find out who's winning over on court right. 18. Right. She's not going to be reporting that. Right. She's going to be, and I happen to love that about her mm-hmm. because she swings for the fences, right. you know, and she uses her influence, her power, her voice, and but she gets all kinds of crazy hate mail, hate tweets, hate, you know, I don't feel the pull to be a part of that. Well, thank you so much for all of your time, Mary. Oh, thank you pleasure. for being on Burn It All Down. It's a terrific, it's a very good listen. I'm very happy you wanted me to be a part of it. We cannot leave 2018 without talking about what we're excited for in 2019. Amira, what are you looking forward to? Um, I don't like odd numbers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I'm excited for the Women's World Cup in France because, duh, Um I'm also excited about the Red Sox playing the Yankees in London. And I'm not sure why that excites me, but it really does. And they're happening at the same time. So I'm trying to finagle a way to somehow be in France and then take that underwater train to London to see the Red Sox and Yankees play in London in late June. Yes. It's like, you know, I have research to do in Switzerland. So I'm just trying to like, I'm envisioning a European epic birthday month tour (laughs) of (laughs) this is what I'm I'm speaking it into existence okay okay? um so yes so that is what I'm looking forward to um as I'm sure many of us are particularly watching um Jamaica's debut you know we've uh, talked to Lauren Silver and followed the Jamaican Federation the Reggae Girls so I'm really kind of looking forward to that but also you know World Cup and the Olympics they make me randomly nationalistic in a way that I kind of don't recognize and creeps me out but I'm also kind of leaning into the basic parts of myself and I'm just like at peace with the fact that um, as much as I'll enjoy narratives from other teams, um, in my heart of hearts, I'll still be rooting for the United States national team. And I'm really excited um, to to go after another World Cup. Okay, that's exciting. Jess? Yeah, well, I'm going to, you know, say the same thing, the World Cup. I am also, you know, and then the other part for me, my dream that I'm going to speak into existence is that the French Open ends when the World Cup begins. They actually share a weekend in Paris. And I would love to be able to go to both of those things. That feels uh, like a pipe dream, but that is something that I'm looking forward to because something that I always look forward to at the uh, beginning of the year is the tennis season. Uh, I am, it is my favorite sport to watch. And of course, you know, Serena and Venus, what what they're going to do this year, how they're going to go, uh, how they're going to play. But then of course, all the young ones, Naomi, Osaka, like how, how it's going to be after her U.S. Open win. I'm always interested in Sloan and Madison. Uh, and I'd like to see what um, Azarenka is possibly going to do this year. I really want her to have a comeback. And I think that would be fun. And then, of course, I'm always interested in the old men of tennis. I really I like Andy Murray and all of his feminism. I hope that he makes it back to the court in a way where he actually... Um, you know, he can play for some titles. And then, of course, the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, whether or not these old men are going to be able to play at the same level. 
Um, <laughs> and, but then, you know, I look forward to the young guns coming up and whether or not someone like Zverev can actually do it, whether or not he can uh, translate it into winning something like a Grand Slam. So that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Amazing. Shereen? Um, like my beautiful co-hosts and brilliant minds that they are the Women's World Cup. I'm super excited for that. The Rage Girls, Scotland, Chile. Um, obviously, I want Canada to win and France is in my heart. You know, I support Le Bleu totally. Um, I also am looking forward to hopefully, inshallah, going to France and hanging out with Les Dogamers, which are a grassroots football team. I hung out with them in Warsaw. I do actually really hope my raps, my beloved Raptors, Kawhi Leonard is here. Um, they just beat Golden State. I feel like I have to say that because it's really important. I'm really excited for what happens with the NBA this year. And a really special one to bring out my 2019 to start it in a wonderful way because my birthday is January 22nd. Um, I will be going to the CWHL All-Star Game, which oh. will be played at the Air Canada Center. Cool. Um, I'm hooking up with a couple of super cool friends. Courtney Sito, we know I've had on the show. My friend Amina Muhammad and Erica Ayala will be here that weekend. Yay. So we are gonna we're gonna hang out. So I'm super excited. I love women's hockey. I love the CWHL. I mean, Sarah Nurse will be there, Natalie Spooner, Marie Philippoulin will be there. Like it's just my faves in women's hockey. What a wonderful way to start the celebrations of my birthday and have women's hockey involved so it's going to be it's going to be pretty fabulous so wow that's that's a lot of goodness i mean let's face <laughs> it what i'm looking forward to is um let's see i guess I, I I guess the NBA season? No. Of course not. It's the Women's World Cup. I'm so excited. I'm dying. I I bought tickets in spite of FIFA's crap system where I had to say I was a missus. Uh, I bought tickets in a fit of optimism to Argentina versus Scotland and the U.S. versus Chile. Ooh. And you know that I spend a good amount of my life covering the history of Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. And I'm super excited. And for anyone out there who has a job for us to do uh, between June 7th and July 7th, I think that you should hire us and give us a lot of money to go there. So I have no idea how it's happening how I'm getting on a plane and going, but I have tickets. <laughs> Mrs. Brenda into has existence. tickets. That's right. Speaking it into existence also involves advertising ourselves as free agents here. So um, any, any outlets who want um, really optimistic feminists, <laughs> anti-racist to report from France, let us know. Um, Chile's never gone before. So I'm, I'm especially excited for, all of them. We hate Lindsay. capitalism, but we oh. are for sale, so we should. <laughs> it's a total system. There's yeah, nothing yeah. we can do. Um, there's nothing we can do. But you could help us beat it from within right. by giving us a go. lot of money. That's wealth redistribution, you know, right there. Um, Linz. Yeah, so obviously I join my colleagues in being excited about the Women's World Cup. Uh, I've got some stories I'm working on it on that I'm excited about for the lead up. 
I don't know if I'm going to be able to swing a trip to existence. So if we're speaking things into an existence, I would like to figure out a way that I could get there for the um, French Open finals for the beginning of the World Cup and yet still do all my WNBA season reporting, which is pretty impossible since it's during the WNBA season reporting. But let look, this is my Christmas. This is my Christmas (laughs) wish. So we're just putting it out there. Uh, yeah, I just absolutely can't wait. Oh my gosh! In the narrative of your um, movie, you will <laughs> the guy will surprise you with tickets so that you can do both, and that's when you'll have the merging of your sports world and the love world. <laughs> oh wow, this is a lot. Uh, <laughs> Speak it into existence. All right, yeah. I need to start writing Speaking. this screenplay. Is what I need to do because actually, one of my personal goals <laughs> is to finish my screenplay next year. So that works out. Um, Can I be oh my in God, your no, movie? Let me write it. I want to be in your movie. Can I have a part in your movie? I, I assume that you would nominate yourself, Shireen. So I've already <laughs> written you into it. So that is, <laughs> I have already anticipated this conversation. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, on a little bit more serious of a note, uh, the, the WNBA is in the middle of huge contract negotiations right now, and yes. their current CBA will expire at the end of the 2019 season. I am very excited, a little scared, but also excited for them to see uh, the ways that they fight for better pay and better treatment from the league. And I'm excited and I'm going to speak into existence their shows of solidarity, the power of unions and unity, and hopes that this can be a contract that can really um, take the WNBA to the next level. And speaking of taking things to the next level, we have done now 87 episodes of Burn It All Down. And Ooh. I think 2019 is going to be our year. We have not Ooh. missed a single week of episodes since we started. I am so proud of no us. Week so. We have such a high percentage of listeners that are Patreon supporters. It's absolutely phenomenal, but I think that we can do better and we can push for bigger things. I think we can exponentially grow our audience. I think we can start actually putting money in our pockets from this podcast this year, because in case (laughs) anyone doesn't know, we use all of our money to make sure we're not spending money on the podcast. We have not yet made a dime. And, you know, and that's fine. I I will always do it for the love of it. But I, you know, I want to burn it all down tour. I know we are doing planning. There is one event that seems to already be locked down that I'm excited about that will bring us all together. But I just want to say, first of all, thank you for everyone who has listened to us and gotten us this far. And I am ready to take this thing up to the next level because I think everyone needs this podcast. And we deserve a lot of money. So that too. Okay, sorry. This this has turned into to just outright solicitation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best of 2018 is burn it all down co-host shamelessly asking for your money. Hey, the confidence of a mediocre white man. We Woo! gotta do that. All right. Amen. That's right. That's right. And true to form, Shireen would like to have an extra. Shireen, what are you looking forward to? I speaking uh, speaking about speaking into existence. 
I actually haven't met Lindsay Gibbs in person. Yes. And oh, a is lot that of people. Oh my God. Yes. No. Uh, we have not. I love Lindsay. She's one of my closest friends, as you all are. It is ridiculous. <laughs> and Amira was talking about how she's seen everyone and has selfies with everyone. And I'm in Slack chat just sobbing silently into my hijab because <laughs> I love you all so much. I need to hug Lindsay. So my it's- wish. My wish for Christmas, which I don't celebrate, but that's okay, <laughs> um, is that I want to hug Lindsay Gibbs. Aww. I want to have a group hug. I want a selfie. I had uh, Amy Camber do a beautiful one where she drew us in a selfie together, but I want that to be a realization, inshallah, God willing. I want 2019 <laughs> to be big for Burn It All Down, but I do want this selfie. I need the selfie to happen, and it's going to happen. So Yay. that is what I wanted to say. That will take the podcast to the next level right there. <laughs> <laughs> so on behalf of all of us at Burn It All Down, we wish you a very, very happy new year. And I'm sorry.